Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The other day, I was in the beautiful town of Stamford to give a talk in St. Martin's Church, where William Cecil, Lord Burley, is buried. And after a very comfortable night, I enjoyed a pretty spectacular run in the grounds of Burley House the next morning, with the antlers of the deer and the turrets of the house silhouetted as the sun just rose through the mist. And when I wasn't thinking about the deer or the sun, I was thinking, as I ran, about a question I'd been asked at the talk the previous night. How much did ordinary people in the early modern period know and care about the great events of the day? How much, for example, would people living in Burley's hometown of Stamford have known about the characters he encountered at court? How, in other words, did news trickle down to the general public in an age before newspapers? So in today's podcast, I thought we'd explore these questions and Joining me to discuss them is the perfect guest, who argues that the news was not only widely spoken about, it was actually sung. And that guest is Dr Jenny Hyde, who is an Associate Lecturer at Lancaster University, a former Associate Vice President of the Historical Association, and the author of Singing the News, Ballads in Mid-Tudor England, published by Routledge, And you can also find her at her blog, earlymodernballads.wordpress.com. Dr. Jenny Hyde, lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Not Just the Tudors. I am really engaged with this question that I hope you're going to help us answer, which is how do people find out the news before newspapers? So there are all sorts of ways, formal methods of spreading news, things like personal correspondence, so letters from one person to another. As you move on through the early modern period, you start to get official kind of newsletters where people are paying somebody else to supply them with information. And sometimes this can be handwritten and sometimes a bit later they move into print. And there are even arguments by people like Chris Kyle that you can see official royal proclamations as news because obviously people need to know what the law of the land is in order to be able to follow it. And usually the news in proclamations is given a preamble, so it's explained why this matters before the legislation or the rules are introduced. More informally, they have more entertaining, I suppose, channels of news, things like ballads and pamphlets. And later on, we get news separates before what we would consider a newspaper, which tends to be something that appears regularly at a specific day of the week. So there will be a certain number of days between it so that you can know when to expect it. But one of the main ways throughout the early modern period, actually, is word of mouth. So people tend to talk to one another and if you look at people's diaries and you look at things like plays from the period you get lots of people meeting another person who's just appeared on stage or just appeared in the village with the words what news so there's certainly a lot of interest in it and the social context that person-to-person context is really important. That actually sort of answers my next question because I was thinking about the fact that this is a period of increasing literacy but still mass illiteracy it's the age of print we're starting to see things like pamphlets and I was wondering to what extent people needed to read to be well informed but I guess you're suggesting that actually 
it was conveyed in speech as much as anything else. But do you think people really did talk about big national events and things that were happening at court and all that sort of stuff? I think we can see that happening. There are certain occasions when you can see it happening. And one of the ways you can see it happening is in things like court records in the earlier Tudor period. So, for example, around the time of the Pilgrimage of Grace, there are a lot of records of things being sent to Cromwell or to the Privy Council where people have been discussing Henry's royal supremacy, what it means to be Protestant, what it means to be Catholic, all those kinds of things, the role of Anne Boleyn, who they consider to be the heir to the throne, the status of Princess Mary. And they tend to be recorded because they're considered seditious. But later on, as people start to keep diaries, because that's less of a thing in the early Tudor period, but as you move towards the Stuart period, you get more and more people keeping a record of their interactions with other people. You can start to see that they are discussing things in, for example, coffee houses, or they've met after church, they've gone to church and discussed things with people. So you can actually see people start to write things down about, I met so-and-so who had seen somebody else who'd heard news from Ireland that such a thing had happened. So I think there is a clear appetite for news and information. And yes, it's being discussed, the difficulty is finding those areas where you can pick it up from the records because so many of the people that are involved in this are the sorts of people who don't leave much of a record, as you will know from your own work. Yes, and I suppose by definition, the spoken word is ephemeral. It disappears. There is no record of it unless, by chance, like this conversation, it's being recorded. But that's obviously not possible in the 16th century. Yes, and I think that links into that idea around sedition and what they consider to be seditious. And one of the problems that the Tudor regime in particular faces is this idea of rumour. And we get proclamations and laws against seditious rumours being declared throughout the period. They go back to sort of Henry VIII, they go right through to Elizabeth's reign. And one of the problems is that, of course, news, it's only rumour until you know that it's credible and you need hindsight for that. So people will act on information, even if it turns out not to be true at times. Oh, and that's very interesting because given that you've mentioned the Pilgrimage of Grace, this major rebellion in late 1536, I remember when I was doing some work on that quite a while ago, one of the things that came up was the rumour of Henry being the mould warp this is sort of ancient prophecy about there being a kind of mole who would destroy the kingdom. Anyway, it's a sort of ancient prophecy that is supposed to be associated with Merlin and all get ill for Henry VIII's reign. The point is, it seems sort of preposterous that anyone would care about anyone saying this, but actually there is real concern about this being said about the king and being precisely seditious, as you say. Yeah. And even the beginning of the following year, 1537, there's still a lot of records of people reporting prophecies in particular, ballads versus seditious rhymes to Cromwell. And I think one of the fears is that they're passed on in these social situations where people gather together. And you've always got that fear of crowds in the period that they're inherently untrustworthy, inherently unstable and difficult to control, which is perfectly reasonable when you consider there's no police force, there's no standing army. So it's very difficult to stamp out a problem if one arises. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that you sort of long for people to ask, I think. Tell us about ballads. Ah, well, ballads. So they're popular songs, basically. They're the pop songs of their day. So they are songs that are written in English, in England, obviously, aimed at a popular audience. So they're the sorts of things that anybody can pick up and sing. You don't need to be trained in order to sing them. They cover the whole gamut of human experience. So there's everything in there. Love songs, funny satirical ballads, political ballads, topical songs. To be honest, if you look at the mid-16th century, the two main themes are God and death in that order. So maybe that's changed a little bit over the intervening centuries. But quite often those two appear together and quite often they've got a very moralising tone. So providence, the idea that you're going to get your comeuppance for any sins that you commit plays a big part in these songs, even where they've got 
topical overtones. So we get things like crime ballads, sensationalist ballads about murders, often women murdering their husbands, despite the fact that then, as now, it's usually the other way around. And we get ballads about a lot of foreign information, foreign news appearing in the 16th century, and more and more kind of political ballads appearing as well. So they serve this kind of role, these songs, are being essentially conservative. They are saying you need to behave in a certain way. They are patriarchal. They're saying, oh, it's going to be women who are going to be rising up to murder their men. And actually, crime doesn't pay. You should behave type of thing, which suggests they're kind of used to control behaviour. Yes, so there's an eminent scholar of ballads, a man called Claude Simpson, who was writing in the 1960s, who describes them as a conditioner and mirror of popular attitudes. What I think he was trying to get at is the way that you have to write things that are going to appeal to people if you're going to sell them. So ballads that appear in print are probably going to be sold, and they're going to be sold at a rate that ordinary people can buy at least occasionally, even if it's only a luxury item that they buy once in a while they also have to appeal so that people remember them so they've got an audience beyond the people that can read them and so if you don't write things that people are going to identify with and appreciate then they're not going to sell either in physical copies as a printed sheet or in terms of the ideas that they're getting across but he also recognizes that they're a conditioner of popular attitudes so they're trying to shape the way that people respond One of the ways that they do that is to use words like we and us. So they're trying to shape the audience into a group identity where you want to be part of that group and not excluded from it. It's a really common literary technique, really, for creating a sympathetic audience. And you can see it in lots of these ballads. It helps to bring people together and sort of create this other group that you don't want to be part of, that are not quite like us. I mean, are these essentially the tabloids of the day? I think that would be stretching things a little, but the parallels are there. So they're designed to appeal to people. They use a lot of emotive language. So somebody like Joy Viltenberg would say, you can see that this is where the origins of the sensationalist press begin. And she uses a lot of things like the murder ballads to show that. So they're using sensationalism in its literary sense appeals to the senses so things to do with what you can hear what you can see what you can smell and feel and that's the same sort of thing that the tabloids do now i don't think you can say i think most ballad scholars would agree you can't say that there's this story there's not a narrative that moves from word of mouth through ballads pamphlets towards newspapers and tabloids with a kind of progression in that sort of sense These things have all got their own roles to play. But I think the idea that these things are entertainment as much as they are information, which I think we might think about tabloids today, probably holds true for ballads as well. Okay, so you've got things like ballads and pamphlets and they're conveying news. But how trustworthy do you think they are? How reliable were they for people? I think my perspective on this is that a lot of them are reasonably reliable They're not going to tell you everything, but that's partly to do with the format that they're in. So there is a limit to the information that you can get into verse. Again, they've got a market. They know that market. They know they need to sell them. So you've got to package it in a way that's going to appeal to people. But I think the important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is to remember that they are inherently sociable. In order to learn the tune, you're going to need to hear it from somebody. And because of that kind of face-to-face transmission, that's one of the reasons that they tend to provoke debate. And we can see that ballads provoke debate because they're being passed on from face-to-face. So you've got the chance to discuss it with somebody else as well. And why are they in verse? Because it helps you to remember. And this was recognised at the time. So you can see right across Europe that people will write pamphlets, they will write instructional manuals in verse, even things that are quite dry and you would never imagine would be written as poetry. They write in verse because it helps people to remember. There are other ways that you can help people remember as well. So things like extended imagery creates an image in your mind that you can remember. Simple things like rhyme literally reduce the memory load. If you have a line that says, great fortune have favoured me, past expectation, 
that I from a ploughman to honour should rise. That's an example that I've just got here in front of me. The line that rhymes can't end with anything other than eyes because it has to fulfil that rhyming role. So it reduces the amount of options that you have for what those words could be. Once you add music into the mix, music's a really powerful mnemonic device in its own right. So if you think about how many songs you know, even if you only know the chorus of them, and then remember that people who were living in the 16th and 17th centuries were much, much more reliant on their memories. So their memories are probably far better than ours anyway. You can begin to see that actually when you start to harness the power of music, which repeats as well, because most of these things go verse chorus or just repeat the verses, you have a whole other layer of ways of cementing those ideas in your mind. And music really helps people to remember. So many interesting ideas in what you've just said. I'm really struck by the reality of that, the rhyme and the metre as well. Even before you got to a rhyme, just the way everything was falling into place means that one can remember it. And I have a two-year-old who has learnt buckets of stuff because it's written by Julia Donaldson, who writes in rhyme, or (laughs) it's a song that's been heard and just spends the entire day singing these rhymes and singing these songs. Yeah, well, I mean, if I tell you that my youngest is now 14, my eldest has just gone off to university, and I can still recite huge chunks of Tiddler by Julia Donaldson, you can see where that's coming from. And I love that idea that people at this time had memories that were just more highly developed than ours because they were just being used so much more. Yes, that was established quite a long time ago, that if you can't write, then you're reliant on your memory or other ways of remembering things. So more people can read than can write. So whilst you might be able to read something, actually making a record of things that you want to remember is not as easy. In their printed form, ballads often are quite attractive. They're quite highly decorated. Towards the end of the 16th century, you start to see more and more woodcut illustrations that relate either more or less accurately to the sort of text that's the story in the song. Even before that, though, you get them with borders, you get them with mock illuminated letters. So you'll get a woodcut of a highly illuminated initial letter at the start so that they're as attractive as possible. So again, you've got other things, you've got a mental image that can help you to remember stuff as well. The one thing that they don't tend to include at any point is printed music because people can't read it. And music is really expensive to print. So that would push up the cost of production, but without any tangible benefit because people wouldn't be able to read it anyway. They're learning the tunes from other people. Okay, so that's how they know what the tune is because they're picking it up. So even if they're buying the text, then actually it's expected that this will be a sort of person-to-person form of communication. Yeah, so increasingly as the 16th century progresses, they will say this is to the tune of. So it will say Packington's Pound, Wilson's Wild, whatever. Not all of them do. And in some cases, we can kind of recover the tunes from the metre. So sometimes we have tunes that produce verses in a particular line lengths and short lines in places. And you can see how the words must fit to a particular tune because there's only one extant tune with that metre. In the case where you have a song where we don't know what the tune is, it didn't say on it, I think probably the most plausible explanation for what people do there is that they fit it to one that they already know that has the same metre. The alternative is that they make one up, because most of these things are fairly straightforward. But because of that social setting, so they will be usually sung either by a travelling hawker, so somebody who sells things like pins, ribbons and ephemeral prints, so these cheap prints as they travel, or particularly a specialist so a travelling balladeer, and they would hear at least some of it sung so that they would pick the tune up. If they already know the tune, then they can go away and they can fit the rest of the words to it. And I think most people in this period probably know somebody who can read, even if they can't read themselves, because you're taught to read before you're taught to write. So usually in an area, there is someone who can read. Who's producing these ballads? Are they being written by ordinary men and women or are they simply for them? Well, this is a really interesting question because most of the ones that are in print are anonymous. 
certainly in the 16th century. So it's really hard to tell. Having said that, where we can identify the people who've written them, they're usually people with a certain level of education. So quite often they'll be university men, people who've trained for the inns at court, lawyers, or people who've been involved in kind of court entertainments, those kinds of things. That said, I've got a PhD student who's working on local libels, so where people are producing material that attacks a local figure in some way. And some of the work that she's done shows that it would appear that there are an awful lot of people just living in their local communities who are able to turn their hand to writing a libelous ballad to answer a particular sort of need in that community at a given time. So, for example, where somebody in the community is seen as transgressing behaviour rules, so not fulfilling their role in this idea of the Commonwealth where everybody's got their role to play. And somebody in the community attacks them in verse, sometimes in song. And we don't often have the full texts of those, but we do have, you know, records again because they've gone to court, because the person who's been libeled is upset about it. What is important, though, really to remember about the printed ones is that they're designed to appeal to everybody. So they're designed to appeal to people at low levels of society but they're also consumed by the elite. So one of the biggest collections of ballads that we've got from the 17th century is from Samuel Pepys. So although he came from reasonably humble origins, he progresses through the bureaucracy of the state to a point where we might consider that he would be looking down on ballads. And a lot of the discussions of ballads in the literature of the time that complain about them and say what rubbish they are, are written by people from the elite. And yet people from that very class are the people who are collecting them. It's trained instrumentalists who have saved the tunes because they've written them down in instrumental arrangements, so they clearly appeal right across society. So picking up on the point that you made about libel... Can we talk a bit about censorship? I was thinking about the fact that under Henry VIII, words become treason. And then, you know, the example that jumps to mind of under Elizabeth I, we've got John Stubbs, poor John Stubbs and his publisher who have their hands cut off when they argue fairly reasonably in print that Elizabeth's marriage to the Duke of Anjou in 1579 is a bad idea. Or the master of the revels who is Edmund Tilney, who has a job of acting as censor to Shakespeare's plays among others, before their performance. And all these things are coming to mind. So, I mean, I was thinking, how did censorship affect the transmission of the news? Could subversive ideas travel, in other words? Well, we know that they do. That's the thing. Somehow it happens, because otherwise we wouldn't have those examples. And I think the examples that we've got are when people are caught, and the ones where they're not, we never hear about. As I mentioned earlier, there's all these proclamations about seditious rumours, seditious books, people talking about heretical books particularly and rhymes, but also these seditious ideas. I think the clue actually is in the fact that there are so many of them because you wouldn't need to keep proclaiming it if it didn't keep happening. So although the evidence is quite hard to find, I think the mere fact that they try to legislate against it shows that it's happening, otherwise you just wouldn't bother. If we take the example of Philip and Mary's reign, so mid-16th century, she comes to the throne in 1553, marries Philip the following year. Shortly afterwards, they give the stationers' company a charter, which is sort of partly intended to control the flow of print. But certainly in its early years, we know there are far more things printed than ever appear in the stationers' registers. And some of what appears in the registers appear never to have appeared in print. So I think there's a disconnect, actually, between what they would like to be able to do and what they actually can do. And I think what they're relying on is people, like in every other aspect of life, just doing as they're told and following the rules. And if you actually transgress those rules, if you break those rules, it's much harder for them to control it. That's so interesting, Jenny. So this idea is that... Tudor society is based on the assumption that everyone's going to be complicit and the bark of the state is actually much worse than most of its bites. I mean, occasionally, obviously, somebody's going to get caught and it's going to end horribly. But most of the time, they don't have the power to do that. No, they don't. And 
within sort of local communities, you're reliant on people like the justices of the peace, the constables, the church wardens, all these people with roles in local society to kind of watch what's going on. But as a whole, most of the time, most people are doing what they're meant to be doing, I think. And the point where they don't, as I say, we only know about it when they've been caught, when somebody's reported them. So, for example, if we go back to the rebellion, the Pilgrimage of Grace. So the Pilgrimage of Grace takes place in October. And the following spring, there's a minstrel caught in Norfolk, in Dis, and he's singing this song about how the Duke of Suffolk might have made England merry and brought England to a better stay than it is now, I think the words are. And he sings this version of The Hunt is Up, and The Hunt is Up was quite closely associated with Henry VIII's court, which is quite interesting in itself. And he's there for a couple of nights singing this song and various people say, oh, come and listen to him. So he sings it once and then the next night he's at the butcher's house, I think, and they ask other people in to listen to it. And then it would appear that the following day the audience think better of it, realise they've been implicated in something that's a bit dodgy. And it's very hard to tell whether it's sort of case of entrapment. They actually ask him precisely what he means by some of the things that are not quite clear so that's the other way of getting around the censorship laws is to write things that have a, a hidden meaning. So they ask him specifically, what does he mean by the hunt is up? And he says that the northern men are up. The north has rebelled against the king. And they report his various answers to these questions to the powers that be. And he gets hauled up. And what's more, so does various of the nobles that are involved as well. So he names various people in whose houses he's sung this song without any problem. And they start having to write to Cromwell to defend themselves. So it's clear that they are talking about this and that it is reliant on people reporting information themselves rather than, in most cases, it's not a concerted effort from the state to go out and try and stop these sorts of things. It's reactive rather than proactive, I guess. I suppose the other question, the other side of it is to ask to what extent balladeers and pamphleteers are acting as organs of state are they trying to convey a certain idea to people so it works both ways edward wilson lee some years ago wrote a really interesting article about ballads and pamphlets that were published around the northern rebellion of 1569 to 70 so against elizabeth i and pointed out that there are some quite clear overlaps between the ballads and the pamphlets and the official documentation that was produced at the time. And you can start to see that, although we very rarely, I think, have anything like a smoking gun that directly points back and says, so-and-so was paid to write this, that there are people who we know have links to the regime, they're very close to court, who are writing things that have clear... I hesitate to say propaganda because that implies a level of organisation, large-scale organisation, that I'm not sure is there. But they're certainly selling the regime's line. So, for example, you mentioned Elizabeth when she was courting, shall we say, the Duke of Anjou. There's a really interesting ballad and pamphlet published around that time. She's entertaining the Duke, or the Duke's ambassador, I think, on a barge on the Thames, and somebody larking about on the waterside lets off a gun and shoots the oarsman through both arms it's an absolutely fantastic song and indeed pamphlet his gushing blood goes everywhere and the queen steps up not afraid and very much the idea of the elizabeth that we all know from the tilbury speech she's not abashed everybody else is fainting and once you look at the ballad and the pamphlet together it's quite obvious that they've come from the same source now, what that source is, is quite difficult to tell. So the pamphlet gives the speech that Christopher Hatton made at what would have been the execution of the shooter. The thing is, it was an accident, so he's reprieved and Elizabeth pardons him, allows him to go free. But there are some quite close relationships between the words, so they're almost lifted. And where they've been changed, the ballad clearly has to be in metre. It has to fit the line length. And it would appear that William Elderton, who wrote the ballad, has either read the pamphlet and taken in the information that's in the pamphlet, or he's seen what the pamphlet was based on, because it's more than just the speech from Hatton at the execution. There's more preamble to it than that. So quite what's going on, it's hard to tell. But you can see that this ballad is definitely 
pushing the official line and saying what a terrible loss to the country it would be if Elizabeth were to die. It would plunge us back into civil war. We should give thanks to God, which actually is how the pamphlet ends as well, the speech ends, that we should be giving great thanks to God that she was saved. So there are definitely occasions when we've got not just patriotic ballads where people are producing something that they know is going to sell because it appeals to current mood, but something a bit more than that. One of the ballads that was written by John Haywood was on Philip and Mary's wedding. Haywood was a staunch supporter of Mary I, and when she married Philip of Spain in 1554, he produced this song the title something along the lines of a ballad specifying partly the manner and partly the matter in the meet match of our Queen Mary and Philip and whatever. It just goes on and on and on and on. But the ballad is really interesting because it doesn't ignore the fact that she's a woman on the throne and it talks about the way that Philip is going to complete this union. And it's Given Haywood's close association with Mary, my suspicion is that he's been asked to produce it to kind of G everybody up and get them to support this wedding, which basically was not really something that a lot of the population would appear to have been particularly happy about because Philip was a foreigner, particularly a Catholic foreigner. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got a sense in which ballads can kind of try and, as you say, G the population up. It's okay that we've got a woman on the throne and it's okay that she's getting married. Here's the positive spin on that. But I was thinking about how you access these things so presumably you're looking at what historians call beautifully ephemera you've got these kind of lovely bits and pieces single sheets or more of ballads that you're looking at but if the melody mattered as much as the words how do you get at that as a historian studying them 
we have lost a lot of the tunes. That's one of the big problems. So a lot of these things that say they're ballads, we have to assume they're ballads, they're produced to look like ballads. Some of them literally have ballad in the title. We don't always know what the tune is. As I say, occasionally you can tell that they were written to fit a particular tune because of the meter. Sometimes they've got verbal resonances of things that go before. I would say that a lot of the time the tune is fairly utilitarian. So by that, then this is the way it used to be looked at. People used to assume that they were just words to whatever tune came to hand. And clearly a lot of the time that is pretty much what's going on. But given what we were saying earlier about people remembering things much better than we do, and some of the work that's been done in recent years around cultures of creativity, the fact that we tend to value things that are original and new and bring something different to the table. And in the period that we're looking at, actually, that's much less the case. New is always slightly scary. So they have much more sort of associative memories than we do. So they're actively looking for resonances of things they've heard before. So just occasionally you get tunes that bring something to the table themselves. And this has been a real area of research that's opened up in recent years since Christopher Marsh published his wonderful book on music and society in early modern England. The way that tunes sort of take on meanings. So, for example, in my own work, there's a clear cluster of ballads to the same tune around the time of the Northern Rebellion against Elizabeth in 1569, also the tune of Rowell Ye Mariners, which is an absolutely stonking tune. It's really good. My husband refers to it as 16th century punk. Some of the songs are real anti-Catholic, really strong, real sense of kind of them and us. We're different. We don't like them. So there's a whole set of those and they all in the main seem to be these kind of anti-Catholic things. It's clearly a tune that was very popular at the time. So that helps. So people do use the same tune to cash in on things. There are also a set of songs to a tune called The Downright Squire around the same sort of period where they're all about women. So they're all about men's attitudes to women. They're quite different, but it would appear that there's this association between this tune and songs about women. The most famous example is Fortune My Foe, which is a really, really simple four-line tune. It goes, la, 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 la. So not necessarily the sort of thing that would appeal to us now, but clearly to the early modern people, it hit every button there was because it's used over and over and over again. It goes by a couple of names, Fortune My Foe and Aim Not Too High are the two common ones. It also becomes known as the hanging tune because it's used for so many execution ballads. So ballads that are published usually shortly after or at the time of somebody's execution. Quite often it would appear they're written just before the execution so they can be sold at the execution. But even where it's not being used for execution ballads, a lot of the time it's being used for ballads about things like sin and trying to persuade people to reform their lives and just behave better. And I think the implication there is that if you don't, you're going to come to a sticky end. So they take on at times these associative meanings that actually if you ignore them and you just treat these things just as text, that you lose some of that. And we can't recapture everything because we simply don't have all the information that we need. But when you can, I think it really repays looking at what the tune is as well and what else it's been used for and whether it's bringing anything else to that song. What I love about the fact that you just sung that to us is that just for a few seconds there, we were back in the 16th century. We were hearing something that so many people then would have been familiar with. And that in itself is absolutely thrilling. It feels like this amazing connection over time. I love the fact that that was called Aim Not Too High, which seems a very British sentiment. But can you give us another example, another ballad that comes to mind? Maybe some words. Okay, are you up for a bit of communal singing? Have a go at learning one? I'm not sure my listener's going to really enjoy that, but I shall uh, (laughs) give it a go. Okay, well, I think... 
one of the things that I like to do when I'm talking to people about ballads is try and teach people one because I think it really helps you as well to understand how easy these things are to pick up. So what I'd like to have a go at is just teaching you a few lines of a song called The Hunt Is Up. I've already mentioned it, I think. It's the one that got rewritten by that minstrel around the time of the Pilgrimage of Grace. And as I said, it was quite closely associated with Henry's court. So it's in its original form, or what we think is its original form, it's a very godly ballad about Christ as the hunter trying to hunt for souls. And it goes like this. The hunt is up, the hunt is up, lo, it is almost day. And Christ our King has come a-hunting, and brought his deer to stay. So, this, albeit, is not the way that they would have learnt them then, but if I sing you a line and then count you into two, do you want to try and sing it back to me? <laughs> OK. <laughs> Give it a go, let's see what happens. Okay, so, the hunt is up, the hunt is up. One, two. The hunt is up, the hunt is up. Good, that's a really good start. Okay, so the next line is, Lo, it is almost day. One, two. Lo, it is almost day. Brilliant. So do we put those two lines together? You've got the hunt is up, the hunt is up, lo it is almost day. Brilliant, well done. Do you want to leave that there and just think about the fact that some of these ballads are 20 minutes long? Okay, so once you've heard it, that same tune, over and over again for about 20 minutes, it's going to have stuck. Okay, they're very, very simple and straightforward, a lot of them. Even the ones that are a little bit more complicated, none of these things require any kind of musical training to sing. So congratulations, you've just had a go at one of our early 16th century songs. And we reckon that that was in circulation well before the Pilgrimage of Grace. So very common at Henry's court. Well done. Well, rather than strain the ears of the listeners any further by hearing me sing anymore. Could you sing us a bit more of that one? I could, but would you prefer me to sing you a bit of 16th century punk? Oh, go on then. 16th century punk sounds great. Who keeps St. Angel Gates? Well, I the Holy Father say, I muse that no man waits, nor comes to meet me on the way. Sir Pope, I say, if you be near, bow down to me, your listening ear. Come forth, bestir me then apace, for I have news to show your grace. Stay not, come on, that I from hence were shortly gone. Hark well, hear me, what tidings I have brought to thee. The bull so lately sent to England by your holy grace, John Felton may repent for setting up the same in place. For he upon a goodly zeal that fell unto your common wheel hath ventured life to pleasure you, and now is hanged, I tell you true. Stay not, Come on, that I from hence were shortly gone. Hark well, hear me, what tidings I have brought to thee. That was slightly wrong at the end, but gives you a flavour of the idea. Okay. And it feels like you've really got a sort of beat there. And I'm thinking of people in the 16th century who are doing largely manual work, who are soaring away at something or sewing away at something, humming to themselves this song that's going round and round in their heads. Yeah, I mean, that one particularly is a really, really good tune. And I think with a lot of them, that metre, they're good for work. That's why eventually you end up with things like sea shanties. They've got that kind of metre that keeps people together. They're just entertaining. So if you want to entertain yourself while you're doing some work, they're a really good way of doing that as well. And you mentioned that ballads were used about the accession of Mary I, but could you give us another case study of when they're used in the 16th century? Okay, so one of the ones that really interests me is a set of ballads that were published around the downfall of Thomas Cromwell. Now, it's a bit of a moot point as to whether these things are just written in verse in order to be memorable or whether they really had a tune. 
Personally, I tend towards the sign that they probably were sung, at least in the early stages, the original ones probably were, largely because they've got a chorus. And I don't really see why you would put a chorus in something unless you want people to join in with it. They don't say what the tune is, but there are some that fit. And the first song is called Troll on Away, and it was written by Thomas Smith, and it's an anti-Cromwell ballad celebrates the way that he was set to spell, which I think is kind of spill his blood at his execution. So we can place it probably immediately prior to Cromwell's execution. And if you set it to one of the tunes that was current at the time, it goes something a little bit like this. Troll on away, troll on away, sing heave and hover on below, troll on away. Both man and child is glad to hear tell of that false traitor Thomas Cromwell. Now that he is set to spell, sing troll on away, sing troll on away. Troll on away, troll on away, sing heave and horrumble or troll on away. So it opens with that kind of sense of come all ye that a lot of these ballads do this kind of inclusive phrase that draws people in both man and child are glad to hear tell so it implies that people are talking about what's going on so that's the first thing that's interesting about it and it goes on to discuss things like the accusations that were made about Cromwell creaming off the prophets from the dissolution of the monasteries. So it says things like, both plate and chalice came to his fist, he locketh them up where no man wist, so where nobody knows where they are, until in the king's treasury such things were missed. So it's got these references to some of the accusations that were made about him. Things like references to a charge that was made that Cromwell was a sacramentarian. He says, both sacraments and sacramentals thou wouldst not suffer within thy walls. So sacramentarianism was the denial of the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. So Catholics, and indeed at the time, almost all Protestants, believed in the real presence, that by a miracle, the bread and wine in the Eucharist were transformed into the real body and blood of Christ. Now that is so heretical that even most Protestants don't believe it. So in order to be accused of that, you were talking about him being something like a Zwinglian, real extreme Protestant behaviour that is completely unacceptable to even most reformers. So there are some really quite detailed accusations made within this ballad. So it prompted an ex-monk turned evangelical called William Gray to write a ballad in Cromwell's defence. And here again, I suspect that what's happening is that they take the tune from the original one because it fits the same metre and it's got kind of verbal references to the original. And Gray claims that the king has actually forgiven Cromwell for his crimes, which really seems quite a strong claim to make and pushing your luck, really, because I don't think there's any real evidence of that. And from this point onwards, this poetic debate descends into something called flighting. So we get one ballad in favour of Cromwell and it prompts another one against him, another in favour, and it goes backwards and forwards. There's even a pamphlet printed that takes one of these things and kind of answers each verse in prose. So it's a clear kind of debate in verse. But it also descends towards kind of insults and things. But it isn't pure mudslinging. There are matters that are really important being debated here. So things like the fact that Cromwell was raised from this very common background, which really hints at the sorts of things that are in Cromwell's attainder. So the act of attainder that stripped him of his noble titles also makes great play of the fact that he is a commoner. He's been raised by the king's favour to a position where he is able to advise the king. And of course, this is something that traditionally only the noble classes would be doing. And therefore, there's this strong element of, of course, he's a traitor because he's the wrong class. He shouldn't be advising the king. But there are also some really interesting debates around what it means to be a true Catholic, which point to the disunity in the country and the lack of understanding, or perhaps confusion's a better term, of Henry's religious policy. So one side will accuse the other of being papist, that side will accuse the original side of being Protestant, and both, of course, are terms of abuse, because to be Protestant in this period is also to be a heretic. So 
what I think it's showing in this essentially cheap print is people are really confused over what Henry's religious policy is. What is the English religion at the time? And people seem to have quite a bit of confusion about that. And this is precisely what Henry is trying to avoid at the time. This is why we get things like the Act of Six Articles, the Act of Ten Articles, that are literally trying to say this is what people in England should believe. And yet this whole set of ballads sort of suggests that people are confused, that they're discussing it, that it's a matter that is important to people. And eventually this is one of the really rare occurrences where the debate is actually quite effectively shut down. So the participants are brought before the Privy Council to kind of answer for what they've done. They're all committed to prison. The two authors are let out after about a month. The printers are not let out until about three months later. So I think one of the interesting things there is actually it's the setting forth and putting this out in a public domain more than it is what they're saying. It's the fact that you're publishing this to people who should not be debating it, that this is kingly privilege, it's prerogative. It's the king's power to decide what's happening here and and nobody else should be discussing this. And the fact that it's been put out into this kind of public forum is one of the things that causes it to be clamped down on. And we've been talking about the 16th century, but one thing I'd like to talk to you about before we finish is your latest book which is about the 17th century revival of a popular Elizabethan form of music. Tell us about John Bolshaw's jig. Right what happened here was I was sitting in the British Library a few years ago and what I tend to do is call up anything that has anything to do with ballads and this absolutely beautiful manuscript was brought up for me And it's described in the catalogue as John Balshaw's jig. But one of the reasons that it really piqued my interest is because it's from this tiny village called Brindle in rural Lancashire, which is actually not all that far from where I live. So I was immediately kind of curious about this thing. And a jig was a really popular form of entertainment in the Elizabethan period. And if you want modern parallel, it's kind of like a musical theatre piece. It's sung right through. But it's sung to popular tunes, so it's not like opera or art song in any way. These are tunes that everybody can sing. These are the ballad tunes. So in the case of John Balshaw's jig, it's set to, I think, five tunes, at least two of which we can find. The other three, I've had to sort of look at what sorts of things were current at the time because we don't have those tunes. But the fact that he names them suggests that these are tunes that were popular locally, that people would have known them around the area. And the plot essentially is a kind of Romeo and Juliet plot. We have two characters, Samuel and Lucina, who fall in love, but Lucina's evil uncle has stolen her land and her estates, and he wants Samuel to marry his daughter instead, Juviana. But there's a twist with this. This, again, is one of the things that really kind of piqued my interest about it, because I think most of the surviving jigs that we have are from the Elizabethan period. And while they've got kind of stock characters, they've got stereotypical villains. This jig is, as you say, a 17th century revival. It's from the period of the Restoration. So it dates from around about 1660, maybe a little bit later. And it's overtly political in the sense that it is set during the interregnum. So it's set while the would-be Charles II is in exile, after Charles I's execution, while Cromwell, or during the interregnum and parliamentarian rule, the Republic. So the twist here is that Captain Causeless and his daughter Juviana are parliamentarian, as you might have guessed from the name, Causeless. And Causeless is, as the play puts it, kind of a base-born upstart, okay? He has made his way in the world because he became an officer in Cromwell's army. So he has money, but he doesn't have social status. So in what I admit is a conjectural setting to a tune that was current at the time, he sings lines like this. Great fortune hath favoured me past expectation that I from a ploughman to honour should rise to have at commandment with great admiration poor peasants, rich yeomen and gentry likewise. For when as our kingdom was lately divided I took up commission a captain to be. 
While some from their dignities downward have slided, now I am advanced to a higher degree. And in the play, the people who have slid from their dignity are Samuel, the male lover, and his father, the Justice of the Peace, whose name is Justice Truman. And he obviously comes from kind of a well-respected family in the community. He's a Justice of the Peace, so he's got that kind of social status. But he's been threatened with this process of sequestration by parliamentary committees. It's a kind of asset stripping from the period where people's estates were confiscated to pay for the government of the country. And what's really intriguing is that fate steps in, and fate in this case comes in the form of Charles II. So when Charles lands and the characters receive news that Charles has arrived in the country, of course, the two families' fortunes are completely reversed. Lucina's lands are restored. Samuel and she are able to get married and Justina and the captain get their kind of comeuppance as well. And I think really this is, again, one of these interesting things about it is that it's clearly something that was resonant in the community. Brindle, like certain parts of Lancashire, not all of it, was quite royalist. So it was an area that was a royalist stronghold, at least through certain parts of the Civil War. And although we don't know exactly who Balshaw is or was, it would appear that he was a Catholic. It would appear that he refused to conform to the Church of England. And that, as he describes it in the dedication of the work, that he has become a humble, decayed poet, new fallen in amongst the beggars. So it kind of suggests that maybe what's going on here is he has been somebody with a certain amount of wealth within the community who perhaps has no longer got that and there is some evidence from hearth tax returns poor law records petitions to the quarter sessions that in fact that this is what's going on that this family was once of reasonably high social standing only at a local level not elite but was one of the more better off members of the community and that within a few years of the death of the person that we think is the author, his widow is petitioning for poor relief. So I think it's interesting not just because it is this late example, it's one of the only examples I think from the Northwest. We know that they were performed in the Northwest, but I think it's one of the possibly the only example that is extant that we actually have all the script for. That's fascinating. And when you were singing it, it really did sound like we were listening to a musical. It was so helpful that you gave that analogy because it was such a catchy tune that you could really imagine being entertained by. Yeah, and it is. It has lots of really interesting characters. So we've got the clown and we've got that kind of bawdy double entendre within it. So he claims that one of the female characters, not Lucina, Juviana, has taught him how to string his bow. And there are all sorts of slightly lewd things that you can imagine going on on stage when some of these verses are being sung. But the tunes are really good. In one case, the last scene is considerably longer than the others. And the tune is a little bit more complex. But I suspect it would probably need to be in order to keep the audience's interest for the length of the scene. So there's a prologue and there are four scenes. And I think the whole thing probably takes about an hour to an hour and a half to perform and one of the things that I would really like to do actually is to take it back to Brindle and perform it because I think it would be just so great to see it on stage in the place where it was written. Well that is really fascinating and I just want to thank you so much for giving me a totally new way into seeing the events of the 16th century to think that everything that's happening on this national stage is being actually, as Henry VIII complained, sung and rhymed about, jingled about in every alehouse and tavern, that actually it really is being sung. It really is being disputed in rhyme and in melody. I find fascinating and it gives me a totally new way of approaching some of the things I spend my time thinking about, whether it's the fall of Thomas Cromwell or Iron Boleyn or whatever, because people are going to be speaking about it and singing about it. Yes. And I mean, I think that's what fascinates me. I think I am really interested in those big ideas, you know, the high politics. But I think what the ballads and the news pamphlets and things offer is a way of looking at how it's received and how it's understood and how it's discussed that perhaps give a 
different sort of perspective on it. And I think that's really interesting and important and a way of recovering some of those voices, even if they don't speak directly for the people, because they're designed to appeal to people. It's a way of kind of getting into what people might be thinking and what they're being expected to think about things as well. And it is getting into their voices insofar as it is likely that many of these things were being sung by the ordinary people of Tudor England. Indeed, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing this amazing expertise with us and for singing to us. It's been an absolute joy. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read your thoughts. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.